We are actually in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. That's going to take me about an hour to get there. Uh, it begins with Paul's um, encouragement, admonition, just plain statement to the Thessalonians saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant in another translation. And so he's going to explain some uh, situation that's going on in the life of that church. Now this, the second thing I'd like to say in preface to this sermon, this is a two-part sermon. This is the first of the two parts. There's not some dynamic application at the end of this. I'm actually going to attempt to do exactly what the scriptures say and inform. So we might even begin to think that we're more or less in the, in the classroom setting in, in some ways. We're going to be looking at the scripture. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture, way more than I usually do. Today is a message about being informed. Particularly in this text, he wants to make sure that the Thessalonians are not uninformed about people who have died. What happens when people die? And I realize that that's a very sensitive topic. It's not my desire to drudge up any, you know, bad feelings, but to do exactly what the text says to do, to inform. And so I hope that you will begin, even as we've already prayed, to receive that as something, okay, you're sitting there, you're listening to this. God, I want, I want to learn what you have to say about this topic because you've said to the Thessalonians, and now you're saying in this day and time, I don't want you to be uninformed. Certainly there have been people who have tried to steer people astray for decades, yea, centuries. I can remember sitting at my desk in 1988. It was in a place called Prairieville, Louisiana. By the way, there are no prairies in Louisiana. Only bayous. I don't know where it got Prairieville, but it did. And I was sitting there at my desk when my free copy, my free copy of Edgar Wisnant's book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. It was a little white book and it had a date on it. I think it was something like October the 21st that, uh, that the rapture was going to occur. The fact of the matter is, is that this publication, these publishers, sent out over 300,000 copies to pastors and ministers all over the country for free. Before it was finished, there were 4.5 million copies bought, sold around the world. This was a pretty significant uh, announcement. And, uh, and when the prediction failed Wisnut was nowhere to be found uh, he did come back though and say okay well I was a little bit off and he said instead of 1988 it's going to be 1989 I was just off by a year but of course when that didn't happen he sent out another prediction for 1993 and then in 1994 and this sort of thing has been going on through the centuries all you have to do is google it you can take a look at predictions about christ's 
return and that kind of thing, and you can find it all over the internet. Another one was by Harold Camping. Harold Camping was a, um, a, a radio broadcaster, very popular radio broadcaster during the 20th century, and he made predictions also in 1994. And then, of course, that didn't happen, so then in 2005, and finally in two, uh, 2011. And 2011 was a pretty big deal. A lot of people were doing things in 2011, but of course, it too did not come to pass. Some believers expressed bewilderment or said that, no, you know, I, I think that maybe this is just a test of my faith that this didn't happen. But of course, once again, in like so many others, uh, camping was nowhere to be found. Actually, he was nowhere to be found before his prediction uh, deadline and even certainly afterwards. Um, but he proclaimed that on a particular Saturday, uh, I believe this would be May 21st, something must be about the 21st of the month, I'm not really sure, but on a Saturday, May 21st in 2011, there was going to be an earthquake, big earthquake, particularly at 6 p.m. This was going to be the beginning of the rapture, and somewhere in the neighborhood of about five months after that, on the 21st of October, every non-believer would be dead. Now, a lot of people did a lot of things when, during these kinds of predictions. I want to cite one man's uh, response to it. His name is Robert Fitzpatrick. He's a retired transportation agency uh, agent in, in New York City. And he spent over $140,000 of his own money preparing for this particular rapture of the church. I, I find it kind of interesting that he traveled from New York City out to California where camping had his ministry. And uh, the article that I read said that this individual, Fitzpatrick, took the week off to make this trip. That was kind of... I know that doesn't hit you, but it hits me just a little bit. Okay, he took a week off for the rapture that was going to happen for all of eternity. I, a little, little ambiguity going on there. And of course, uh, it didn't happen. But when it didn't happen at 6 o'clock as prescribed, he said this, I do not understand why. I do not understand why nothing has happened. I can't tell you what I feel right now. Obviously, I haven't understood it correctly because we're still here. Now you might already pick up on the reason I wanted to read that quote from him. It's because Paul's words to the Thessalonians are, I want you to understand. I don't want you to be ignorant. And so I really wanted to let you know about that other testimonies about other people who had done extraordinary things selling all of their possessions moving together to a certain location uh, getting rid of uh, or, or expending uh, college funds and college plans for their children and all kinds of things that people do when these predictions come out washington post said that there were suicide prevention facilities for people who were really, really depressed and discouraged about it. 
Atheists would have parties after the deadline passed and it didn't happen. Atheists would, would have great parties. It was probably one of the saddest things one um, person noted to see all of these people in anguish because of all of the things that they had sold and the things that they had done only to see that squashed. Perhaps a little bit of this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians. If you recall, last week we talked about uh, one of the things that we talked about was Paul was encouraging the believers to live a quiet life and to work with their own hands, you see. Perhaps what was going on, we don't really know for sure, but perhaps maybe some of those Thessalonians were doing some of the same thing. Oh, well, the rapture's coming. The rapture's coming, so why in the world do I get up so early in the morning and go to work? Uh, the, the rapture's coming, so why do I need to plan on what I'm going to do next week or next month? Because, in fact, maybe I'll just go down to the market and kind of hang out with the guys, the gals, or whatever, and we'll talk about whatever it is we want to, and they're not living a quiet life. They're not working with their own hands and thinking, oh, maybe this is coming. In theological terms, and and again, I remind you, this is a teaching time today, so hang in there every now and then, breathe through your nose like I used to do when I was a student, kind of especially in the morning, and, and keep awake. I hope that you will. When, um, when we look at what the Apostle Paul is, is doing here, the theological terms are over or under realized eschatology. Most of the time we just talk about over-realized eschatology. That is believing that it's already here. Uh, from time to time in different sermons, the, the theological epitaph that's referred to is the already but the not yet. You and I live in between the already and the not yet. Already we're in Christ. Remember when we talked about sanctification and we said that we have been sanctified? We are being sanctified, but one day we will be sanctified. So we have been and we will be, but now we're living in this middle territory. When we begin to act like while living in this middle territory that we swing the pendulum all the way over here and we say this is, well, as Joel Osteen likes to say, the best life. And we begin to believe that here and now is our heaven. Then we're in over-realized eschatology. In his particular book, he writes... The results of being uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, actually this is me at this point, is living in that already but not yet. Now here he writes, Happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best lives now. They make the most of the present moment and thereby enhance their future. You can too. No matter what you are, or what your challenges are, or what you're facing, 
you can enjoy your best life now. That's kind of a statement of overrealized eschatology. He's not the only one. Go on the website and read different churches' um, um, you know, mission statements and their vision, that sort of thing. Here's another one from one of the largest churches in America. We keep our focus simple so we can have the biggest impact possible. Everything we do as a church is filtered through our focus on helping every person live the full life for which God created all of us. Now, I, I know that you like that, and there's a lot in there that we might discuss and say, oh, okay, that's all, that's all right, that's all right. But when we begin to focus on everything in the here and now, then we are living in a place of over-realized eschatology. Quite possibly that's what was happening in the Thessalonian church. However, the ditch on the other side of the road, swinging the pendulum the other way, is probably perhaps closer to where most everybody in this room would live as opposed to over-realized, but under-realized. Do we ever think about heaven? Do we ever consider uh, that the challenges that we go through, as Scripture describes, are, are just small things compared to the great glory that is coming our way? Or do we just, not really intending to be, I'll, I'll say evil or wicked for sure, but not intending to, to appear to the outside world to be a, a heathen and a pagan, but at the same time, do we just kind of live like the rest of the world? Now, most of the time when a preacher says something like that, well, you're living like the world, then we're really looking for these deep, dark sins, and that's not really what I'm saying at this point. I'm, I'm just saying nonchalantly, in normal, everyday, here and there, grocery store, work, life, are we living in such a way, are we thinking in such a way that, uh, that heaven's not really there? Now, you would never admit that, but the question is, is do we just kind of... And then when a challenge comes along, do we wring our hands and worry and to such an extent that it absolute, the thought that God is in control and He's seated in the heavens, He does what He pleases, is just not present. That's an underrealized eschatology. Uh, Carson says this, D.A. Carson, in his... Uh, chapter on partakers of the age to come get this so part of the christian's maturity part of the christian's maturity turns on grasping exactly what it means to be partakers of the age to come it turns in part on getting this balance right that is the balance between not just living as if this is the best life and this is all it is and heaven's already here or ignoring it completely, but living in this middle, Carson is saying the issue is what we need to do is get this balance right. And I actually think that the Apostle Paul, in some sense, is also saying that to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians, you're out of balance. You need to get these things right. Now, the Thessalonians, nor we, are the first people to get these things out of balance. In the next few moments, I'm going to read several passages of Scripture. 
Some of them are very long. But I'm not trying to teach these passages as much as I am saying that the author, whoever's writing to the audience, is trying to inform them and to help them to keep this balance in check. I hope you've got that. These passages are the author, and in particular, about the end times, about the things that are coming. For instance, some of the people who have gotten this out of balance before, even in the Bible, I start with John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, which is the end of the Gospel of John, the disciples are there with him. They're talking about what's happening next. Uh, Peter's there particularly, and John is there particularly, and the Lord Jesus has just asked Peter three times if he loves him. And then it says this in 21, 23. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciples, this disciple, that is the disciple John, would not die. But here's my point. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? What I'm saying is, is I'm bringing up Issues where people didn't understand and are being corrected. And I'll just run to the chase right at the very end, or maybe at the end of next week's sermon, insofar as saying, we don't understand everything. There are faithful Christians who believe different things about these things, and even as far back as the New Testament, people didn't really understand it. But in our first three words of our text from 1 Thessalonians, God doesn't want us to be uninformed. I, I almost want to clap my hands, stomp my feet, and say, wake up, Christians. We need to be informed about these things. But that was the conclusion, so I go back to my next text. Acts chapter 2. Here, the Holy Spirit has fallen on them in the day of Pentecost. Some people are criticizing what's going on. It seems to be chaos to some people, and maybe these people are drunk. But then Peter stands up in verse 14 and says, and the text says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. Now this is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk. As you suppose, for it's the only the third day, uh, the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days. Okay? So you see why I picked this passage. This shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus, the Nazarene, a man tested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, obviously, a very wonderful passage of Scripture to preach. But actually, I'm still on the one single point, so I'm going to bring you back to it. What is Peter doing? He's talking to a group of people who don't understand what's going on. And he is explaining, he's informing them. Moreover, he's saying... This has been God's plan since the foundation of the world. It's a predetermined plan, he says. And so what he's trying to do to his audience is he's informing them, he's teaching them, he's preaching to them about what it is that God is doing because they don't have it right. Oh, you think they're drunk or something crazy is going on. No, 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 no. This is God's plan, and so he's instructing them. Down in verse 32 of the same passage, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And he continues on, but I'm going to stop at that point. Again, my only point in this is to say, oh, He's actually talking to them about the things that not only are occurring in their midst, but are supposed to continue to occur and happen in the, in the future. He thinks it's important enough to do. Um, the, the Apostle Paul, of course, Acts is, is the writing of Luke. The Apostle Paul, probably the premier place of his teaching on this topic, comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The longest of the passages that I'd like just to consider. And again, I'm grateful, actually, that these times now among us are being recorded and that they're on the air and that sort of thing so that you can go back to them. Because as a lecturer, as a teacher, today as a preacher, you get a lot of information pretty quickly, and it's very good to either take notes and to be able to go back and refer. So now I'm in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, and beginning in verse 1 down through 19. Now I make known to you. See there? I, I know we skip over those introductory statements, but the Apostle Paul in 15, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he starts out by saying, I make known to you. Why? Because you need to know. And if I say it another 20 times today, this morning, maybe the impact will hit you as it's hit me we need to know in this shaky world of ours we need to know now i make known to you brethren the gospel which i preach to you which also you received now this is interesting i know i can't do this i can't preach this but it's interesting to me he says i'm going to make something know that you know or at least i'm going to make something known to you that you've at least heard before which means we need to grow in our understanding of it. Verse 2, By which also you are saved, 
if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. Most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labor even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he, Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, I'm about a month or so early on this passage, aren't I? You know, Easter's not until somewhere around April 17th or so, right? Well, that's not what I'm doing. And I remind you once again, it's not what I'm doing trying to preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm doing is saying, when Paul is teaching, writing to the Corinthians, he's saying, you got it wrong. You're not quite on target here. Some of you are saying there is no resurrection. Well, if that's the case, then we can all just go home right now. They didn't have it right, and Paul is correcting them. And he's saying to them, I want you to be clear about what I preached to you before. In fact, I want you to know that everything that I said to you before is still true, regardless of your personal circumstances. He does it again twice in the book of Ephesians. Shorter passages. How you hang in there, folks? I hope so. You know, the Word of God is totally sufficient to preach itself. It's wonderful. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Paul is explaining to the Ephesians that God made known to us the mystery of His will. Ah, pause, breathe. If something's a mystery, then it's not known. It's a mystery. Huh, I don't know this. It's a mystery. But God is making known the mystery of His will. Oh, okay, something that we didn't know before, now we're getting. All right? He made known the mystery of His will according to the kind intentions which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That's why I picked it. Suitable for the fullness. In other words, He didn't make it known then, He's making it known now, because now's the time. 
That is summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth. Now, picking up the same letter in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can understand. I want you to understand. Well, it doesn't say that, but that's what I said. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now again, a wonderful sermon that the Gentiles have been included, but that's not my purpose here. My purpose, once again, is to say they had it wrong. They didn't have it quite right about the nature of the gospel. It was a mystery before, he clearly says. In fact, one could go so far as to say God intended for people before not to know it. Now, I might question some of that, but simply saying it was a mystery before wasn't revealed. Now it's revealed, and you need to know it. What Paul wants the Thessalonians to know is that all he's told them about eternal life is still true, even if you die. Even if you die. You need to know what happens when you die. You need to know what happens when you die. So with that introduction to the sermon, let's ask a few questions, pretty briefly. Number one, what happens when people died before Christ? What happens when people died before Christ? That's why Dr. Lutz read Luke 16. Go to Luke 16, would you, in your Bibles? Luke chapter 16. Some people say it was a parable. Some people say it wasn't a parable. I'm really not going to dialogue about that. Um, I, I just want to take a look at it for a moment. This is what we're going to do in the next three minutes. We're going to ask the question, what happened to people when they died before Christ? What happens when people die after the cross of Christ? And what happens when people die after the resurrection of Christ? And uh, we're going to spend a little bit. So here's, here's our parable. Spoke. Uh, I believe a parable. Maybe not. Maybe real. There was a rich man, manager. You see that? I'm going to go quickly here now. And he called and said, What is this that I hear about you? And the account, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place, aren't I? All right, I'm there now. Chapter 16, verse 19. He's in the wrong place. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, and decided to feed him. And moreover, and I'm, I'm going quickly, the dogs licked his sores. 22, the poor man died 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment. Let's just stop right there. And let me just say just at least one quick word about whether it's a parable or not. Obviously, if it was a narrative story, you would be saying Jesus is telling a true narrative story because Jesus could not lie, right? Are we there? Well, let me reinforce that by saying that Jesus could not tell a parable that's not also true. Even if he's just giving an illustration, the facts of the illustration still have to be true. So we have a poor man who's destitute. And the Bible said that when he died, he went someplace. Now, in the Bible, that place before the cross of Christ is mentioned to, to be several things, even in this particular passage. It's Abraham's bosom. In another place, it's paradise. If you could imagine for just a moment, maybe a circle. And uh, this circle has two lines going through it like that. In other words, there's a division uh, between the top and the bottom. And the top is called Abraham's bosom. Or the top is called paradise. And this man went to paradise. But as we continue, the rich man did not go to paradise. Where, where does it say that he went? Uh, yeah, it, it said that he was buried and in Hades in torment. So if we can imagine our circle, and that's just Buzz's illustration trying to show it, that lower place, what is that called? That lower place is called Hades or Sheol, sometimes Gehenna, or certainly hell. And he's there. And as the story goes on, and he called out Father Abraham in verse 24, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in, in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you are... You know, that you in your lifetime received the good things in Lazarus like men or bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order to, uh, that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to so if you've got my circle going here in these two lines i'm just illustrating by saying that's a chasm and people who are in hades and hell cannot go to here and people who are there cannot go here after death it's over wherever you are and so we're asking the question what happens when people die before christ and that's what happens. They go there. What happens when people die after the cross of Christ? What happens when people die after the cross of Christ? Well, Paul helps us with that in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I know there's a lot of scriptures today. Pray that you're taking notes or that you'll refer back to the recording. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the Apostle Paul writes this beginning in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some of that we're going to look at again next week. But what I want you to know that is after the cross of Christ, after the cross, what happens when somebody dies? Paul is making it very clear that though the body may be in the ground, it may be in the tomb, the soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. Now, I can't get into the Apostles' Creed and all that it says about Jesus during the time, in between the time that he was crucified and the time that he rose. Did he actually go to hell and re release the captives, as Isaiah 61 says and, and in other places? Um, you're going to have to just put that in the parking lot for right now. And just to know this, that what happens when somebody dies after the cross is that the soul immediately goes to be with the Lord while the body remains. Now, finally then, what happens when somebody dies after the resurrection of Christ? Well, we finally made it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, don't panic. I'm just introducing this again to you. But I go over to our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, here we go now, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, post-resurrection, this text is telling us that those souls who are now with the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus returns, they're going to come with him. Who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what happens to them. What happens after someone has died, after the resurrection? soul goes directly to be with the Lord, the body and the grave. But when Jesus comes back, the first thing that happens is they rise with the resurrected body. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What happens to somebody before the cross? They were in these, I don't really like calling it a holding tank, but they were. Now, after the cross, the soul immediately goes, though the body is there. Upon Christ's return, those, th those whose body is in the ground, but whose soul are with them, they rise to meet him in the air. Now, we're going to talk about more about that next week. Well, you say, what happens to those who were in that lower place that you talked about? They go someplace else. But we all meet up again at the judgment seat of Christ, according to the passage. 
according to what Paul is saying. So this is what is happening, going on. Now, a little introduction to next week. I already told you there's no real application other than what you've already heard today. But a little introduction into next week. Well, it's in our passage. Uh, well, not this one, but take a look what 1 Thessalonians 5.1 says. Now concerning the times, I'll just stop right there. In other words, what are we going to talk about next week in part two of this? When does it happen? What order does it happen? What comes before and what happens? We're going to talk about three different views of what is known as the millennium. If you'd like to read, read Revelation chapter 20. We're going to talk about three views of the millennium. And then we're going to talk about three views of the tribulation. And people are all over the map about these kinds of things. But if there's an application today, and you don't show up next week, I guess, <laughs> I don't want you to be uninformed. And, and as much as I believe God says to me, he says it through his word and prayer and just meditation about this. This is okay. This is okay to take the traditional, maybe, preaching time to say, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about this. And if there's a further application, if you find yourself, as I have found myself many times before, eh, you know, it'll all pan out in the end, right? I have a feeling that God is not pleased with that kind of attitude or he wouldn't spend the kind of time he has in saying to you and to me, I don't want you to be uninformed. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we have come to your word and we have heard a lot of it this morning. Maybe for some of us it's new. But it's my prayer that as we pursue knowing you and pursue knowing your predetermined plan for the ages that we would be passionate about knowing more of it so that we may know more of you that we would not grieve in this world as those who have no hope even if they don't even know they don't have any hope but we are different born by your spirit we pursue knowing you so that we might have the full gospel that you have intended for us to understand and to know that you've created us that we've fallen that in Christ we are redeemed and that there is a future a future hope and a future grace help us to understand this in Jesus name